Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took on a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the money box he used to steal from what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Carol, thank you for reading our lesson and greetings to each of you in the name of Christ. Uh, it is so good to be with you in worship. Uh, Mason and our boy band this morning, we're grateful to you for leading us in worship and Casey for your prayer. Uh, and for all of you who are present today, we welcome you. Those of you online, what a privilege it is to be with you in your home and to share God's word uh, with you. It's, we're two weeks from Easter, if you can believe that. Two weeks from today, uh, we'll be meeting at 8, 9.30, and 11. Uh, the 9.30 service will be the contemporary service on April 17th, two weeks from today. So next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and we'll begin our Holy Week pilgrimage together. Uh, three weeks from today, that is April 24th, uh, we'll have a new worship schedule, and many of you have seen in the e-notes and some of the uh, shared information that we have given to you that we will be beginning our 8.30 service back on April 24th. So we'll have 8.30 and 11 here in the sanctuary, and we'll be having our 9.45 contemporary service in the chapel where the awakening service originally began. Uh, and so uh, we hope that you'll join us uh, three weeks for those new worship times, and we'll have one Sunday school session, of course, at 9.45. Uh, so stay tuned for more information about that and for more information concerning Palm Sunday and the special services that we'll be sharing during the most holiest of all weeks. I've heard it said before that Jesus eats his way through the Gospel of Luke, and I think that's true. Almost every other chapter, you see Jesus at table, often associating with the wrong crowd. So much attention is given in the New Testament to Jesus' table fellowship. And so it's interesting, thus far in the Lenten season, during these 40 days, we have exclusively read from Luke's narrative, but this morning, Carol has introduced us to a text from the Gospel of John. But again, this scene takes place in John's Gospel, again, around a table, around a meal. And I like to think of this text as the next to last supper. The Messianic age was often envisioned and spoken of as a banquet. It's no accident that the center of Christian worship historically has been a table 
where we come in remembrance through bread and wine of Jesus' sacrifice. Even in our Judeo-Christian heritage, the Jewish calendar is built around seven different feasts, four in the spring, three in the fall. All these festivals for our Jewish friends celebrate their history, their faith history, their chosenness, the blessings of God throughout their race. But the defining celebration for our Jewish friends is the feast of the Passover, which marks the deliverance of the Hebrew children from Egyptian slavery. Uh, Next fall in August, I'm gonna begin an 11-week series on the book of Exodus, and we're gonna talk about deliverance and God's delivering power in our lives. John's gospel recounts that Jesus came to Jerusalem at least three times for this feast. This is often how we have calculated, perhaps that Jesus was 33 when he died. He began his ministry at age 30. He came to Jerusalem three times for this feast. And our text begins today by saying it is now six days, almost a week, before Passover. Jesus is in Bethany, that is, on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, just two miles away from the holy city. Uh, Doug and Betty, we were there on the Mount of Olives just about three weeks ago, and here's Jesus in Bethany. He's bunking with dear friends there, Lazarus and sisters, and as you know, it's not the first time that Jesus has been a guest in their home. You remember the first time. You remember an earlier visit where Jesus, according to Luke, turned their parlor into a classroom. He turned their kitchen table into a lectern. And while Martha was fixing the meal, Martha was a southerner, she was always fixing to do something. While she was preparing the meal, Mary, where was Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. In other words, Mary was neglecting her gender role, which in the first century was to be cooking in the kitchen. The role of a disciple in the first century in Jewish culture was reserved exclusively for men. And so that phrase, sitting at the feet of, is the language of a student and a teacher, a mentee and a mentor. And of course, you remember in that visit that Martha fusses at Jesus. She kvetches with Jesus about the lack of help from her sister Mary. And in fact, Jesus defends Mary. Jesus actually scolds Martha. You remember, Martha, Martha, you are distracted by many things, but Mary has chosen the main course. One translation says the better portion and it will not be taken from her. When I read that, I'm reminded in my own spiritual life how often I get so stressed by my own preparations, even in studying the scripture sometimes. How often we get distracted by our own service and by our own activity, and the better portion, the main course, is not just working for Jesus, it's just being with Jesus. Jesus. That's what worship at its simplest form is. It's just being together in the presence of Christ with one another. Discipleship is not just about action. Discipleship is about adoration. 
Spiritual formation is not just about my motion or your emotion. It is about our devotion in just being with Jesus. Be still and know, says the psalmist, that I'm God. I cannot often know that God is with me in my distractedness, but when I'm still, when I'm still enough to hear my own thoughts, my own hopes, and yours as well, I'm aware I'm not by myself. That text in Luke 10 that I just referred to, the first visit, uh, it is immediately preceding the scene called the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that, where the priest and the Levi walked by the bleeding man, but someone stopped a Samaritan. And it's interesting, you've got those two stories right together that have completely different morals. One moral is, don't just sit there, do something. And the other is, don't just do something, sit there. And wisdom knows the difference. I've discovered the hard way in my own life that action without discernment is just distraction. Discernment is not the same as decision-making. Discernment is about listening and responding to that place within us where our deepest desires align with God's desires. But you have to be still. John 12 then follows the raising of Lazarus. You remember the raising of Lazarus in Bethany. The news of this marvel Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus goes to the grave, worried about the aroma, and calls him out of the grave, and he comes out in his grave clothes, leaving them behind. And the news of this miracle, of course, draws the wrath of the religious leaders, namely the Sadducees, who were the temple authorities. They were in charge of the Methodist Center, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Vatican, whatever, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. According to chapter 12 in John verse 10, they are now hunting Jesus and Lazarus to eliminate them. They're fearful of the response of the crowd to Jesus' ministry. And Caiaphas knows, the temple authorities know, as do we, that it wouldn't take much during the feast of the Passover to ignite a riot and there'd be hell to pay from the Romans. And so it's the high priest, the decision maker, Caiaphas, who concludes, if you look back to John eleven fifty, 50, better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation be obliterated. And suddenly now it's clear to us that Jesus' days, well, they're numbered. And so here in Bethany, where he can be himself with his friends, where he doesn't necessarily have to preach or teach or prove anything, Martha prepares the next to last supper. It's a banquet, I think, of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for her brother. She probably, and this is the revised chapel version, I have no evidence of this, but she probably serves the casserole that was intended for Lazarus's funeral meal. But the funeral never happened. And once again, at this table, leave it to Mary <laughs> to do something unconventional. Leave it to Mary to do something bizarre at the table. Watch this. In an impractical, 
impulsive, imprudent act of reckless love, she approaches the teacher with this precious jar of perfume. It's interesting how John is so detailed about the ointment. He calls it a, a pure nard. He's, a pure nard would have been the oil of, of an aromatic plant that likely came from northern India. He specifies it's a pound, which a Roman pound was 12 ounces, usually perfume, precious perfume, maybe an ounce, two, three at the most. This is a pound. This is 12 ounces, a Roman pound, and it's worth 300 denarii. That's a lot of money in the first century. In fact, that's a year worth of wages for a blue-collar guy, 300 denarii. And she breaks the seal at the table, and she pours it on his feet. Now, that's interesting because you see this same story in all four Gospels. In fact, in Matthew and Mark, uh, according to Matthew and Mark, Mary pours the ointment on Jesus' head, and that would be like anointing a king. But in John, she pours it on Jesus' feet, and get this, and then wipes it with her hair. Now, I don't have to tell you that in the first century, a Jewish woman with her hair uncovered is scandalous. A single woman touching the feet of a rabbi in the first century, it's outrageous, it's shocking. But for Mary, who has, apparently has no sense of self-propriety, it's an expression of reckless love. And the, I love this line, the fragrance fills the house. That, that's a metaphorical way of saying that what she did has influence over the whole economy. Beautiful story, but then there's pushback. There's always pushback, isn't there? And it comes from one of the 12. It's interesting that Mark says all 12 objected, but John says, no, it's just one. It was Judas who, seeing this extravagant gift, said, what a waste. But this, this substance should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And when you stop and think about it, that's, that's, a, good, that's a reasonable response. I mean, that's a stewardship response to me. And sometimes I think we could make the same argument in the church that sometimes the church, we spend more money on property than we do on people. And so when I hear this critique, I think maybe it's got a point. We, we in our budget sometimes spend more on accessories than necessities. We spend more on maintenance than mission, and I'm troubled with that. But then John sees beneath the surface of the complaint John sees the motive behind the complainer. Apparently, says John, Judas has been dipping into the kitty all along. In fact, John calls him a thief, which in the Greek language is kleptes. It's our word for klepto. A kleptomaniac is an impulse control disorder. It's an irresistible urge to take something that doesn't belong to you. And so it is with Judas. In fact, a little later during Holy Week, Judas would betray Jesus for less money than the perfume was worth. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but sometimes those of us who complain the loudest are actually concerned 
the least. So it is with critics. I read the other day, a critic is one who knows the way but can't drive the car. I love the quote, a critic is someone who enters the battlefield after the war is over and shoots the wounded. And so it is quite often that we're much better at critiquing than we are in discipling. And so it was with Judas. So it is with me and you sometimes. I'd a whole lot rather critique someone who's doing well than do it myself. But the point is well taken. I wonder sometimes in our age with all the suffering and hardship that we see, with all the, the war in Ukraine, the, the millions of, of refugees around the world, and the lingering effects of COVID, I wonder if we need to be spending resources and energy on embellishing sanctuaries and purchasing lilies and Easter pageants. And if we were to put it to a vote, Judas would say no. But I have noticed that you don't necessarily have more for outreach when you cut out worship. When I cut back on my devotional life, I lose my mission. When I cut prayer out of my life, when I cut praise and adoration, I begin to lose motivation. When spiritual formation goes out the window, motivation leaves too because divine devotion inspires love. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor, it's the same. Flip side of the same coin. Mother Teresa once said, there is always the danger in the church that we may just do the work for the sake of the work. But this is where the love and devotion come in, that whatever we do, we do it as though we're doing it to Jesus. We're doing it for God. We're doing it for Christ. And that's why what we do needs to be beautiful and extravagant and as loving as possible. And that's what Mary was doing. She spills her perfume on his feet with reckless abandon because he's in the house, because Jesus is present, because Jesus, a rabbi, has loved her like no one has ever loved her before. And so for Mary, there's no cautious calculation here. There's, there's no prudence and moderation in her adoration. There's no consideration of, is it efficient? It's not wasteful because it has nothing to do with prudence. It's about sheer love and gratitude for what Jesus has done for her, is doing for us, and is about to do on Good Friday. Now, I'm all for prudent stewardship. Our finance chair is here with us this morning, and he would agree. We're all for prudence and being frugal. That's important. Caring for the poor, it's not an option. It's essential. But Jesus stands up again, just like he did in that first visit, to defend Mary. And this is what he says. Hey, you'll always have the poor with you, and you ought to do everything you can for them but you will not always have me. What she has done is a beautiful thing. 
I'm borrowing from Mark in that last line. Beautiful thing in the Greek, it means kairos. It means timely. There are two words in the Greek for time, chronos, chronological order, that's calendar time, kairos. That's God's sense of timing. What she has done is a timely thing. What's that mean? It means that Mary, in presenting this gift to Jesus, instinctively saw death coming to her teacher. But she doesn't wait until he's gone to show her love. She beats death to him. She gets there ahead of time. This gift that she gives anointing his feet is actually a preparation for his death. In the synoptic gospels at the tomb, there is no anointing of the body. You know why? Because Mary did it ahead of time. She beat death to him. I've discovered in nearly 40 years of ministry, the two saddest phrases in the English language are these, if only and next time. There are some things in life that don't have a next time. I'll never have a next time to raise my children. I'll never have a next time to love my grandson. I'll have, never have a next time maybe to preach the gospel or to share in a service like this. When you feel a nudge to make a call, to give a gift, to meet a need, you don't wait till tomorrow. You do it today. And when you do, God will be honored and you will be blessed. I don't know why in Judas's critique of Mary that he didn't stop to realize that the biggest sacrifice that woman was making was not to the poor, it was to herself. She could have kept that gift for herself, but she didn't. She gave her costliest possession to the greatest expression of God that she had ever known, and somehow she made the frozen things of death smell like spring, and the fragrance still fills the room. Love is not really love when it becomes too frugal. No, love gives all, and love's only regret is that I don't have more to give. Let me give you an example, and I'm finished. Anybody know the name William Sidney Porter? You ever heard that name? He was an American short story writer from Greensboro, North Carolina, born in late uh, 19th century, born in Greensboro, North Carolina, go Tar Heels, yes, tomorrow night. He wrote 381 short stories. William Sidney Porter, you probably know him better by his pen name, O. Henry. He wrote a classic tale, some of you know it, called The Gift of the Magi. It's a beautiful story of a young couple named Jim and Della. They were dirt poor, but they were rich in love. Both of them had one prized possession to their name. Della's was her hair which was her glory. When she let it down, it almost served as a robe to her body. And Jim had one prized possession, a gold watch that had been passed down to him by his father. It was a treasure. 
On the day before Christmas, O. Henry writes that Della had $1.87 to her name, but desperately wanted to give a gift to Jim worthy of her love. So she went out that day and she sold her hair for $20. With the proceeds, guess what she bought? A platinum fob for Jim's precious watch. When Jim got home that night and saw Della's shorn hair, he was stunned and slowly he handed the gift that he had purchased for her, which was a set of expensive tortoise shell combs with jeweled edges for her beautiful long flowing hair, which he had, by the way, purchased with the proceeds from his gold watch that he too had sold. Each had given the other everything they had to give and the fragrance filled the room. An extravagant expression of love given without measure. The reason this story is still in the gospel is because Mary's gift became a precursor to the gift that Jesus would give six days later in Jerusalem when he would become the Passover lamb. Greater love has no man than one who gives his life for his friends. And so we come today to a table full of lavish gifts, the aroma in the room of bread and wine, because this is our next to last supper before Holy Week. And so as we receive these gifts of incalculable worth, that having received them, we may rise in newness of life to walk the way of Jesus and to offer our own lives broken and spilled out, holy and acceptable to the one who has first loved us, to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.